Students, do you like the last day of class? Some of you look forward to that day, knowing that it's about to end. Others of you might be very anxious, because that means if it's the last day of class, the next thing happening is the exam day, and you may not be ready for that. But by and large, endings somewhat bring us joy in, in most things in life. Conclusions. Uh, well, I, 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 I want to let you know that today is one of those feelings for the book of Ecclesiastes. We are reaching the ending of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've been with us for the past few months, we've been working through this book uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, this is the 16th sermon on this book, so... Uh, you do the math, we've had 16 sermons um, over the book of Ecclesiastes. Today we reach the end of it. So I encourage you to open Scripture to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. I'll be reading from verse 9 through 14. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage to, you to find and pick a Bible provided in the chair in front of you. It's a black Bible. Um, we encourage you to open it to page number 559. As you open God's Word there, I want to remind you that if you don't own a Bible, or if you don't own an ESV Bible, which is a version we're using uh, here in our services, you're welcome to grab the Bible, the Pew Bible, and take it home with you. It's yours to take. We'd love for you to have it. Here's the Word of the Lord for us as we prepare our hearts for this final word from the book of Ecclesiastes. They find the conclusion to this book. Besides being wise... The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there's no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you bow with me in a, in a word of prayer? Almighty God, we thank you that you have revealed your ways, your wisdom to us through the book of Ecclesiastes and through the rest of the scriptures. Father, as we prepare our hearts to hear from you this conclusion to the book of Ecclesiastes, we ask, would you open our hearts would you speak to us clearly? May your truth be like goads to our hearts this morning. May your truth be like nails fastening to our memories. May we hear your word and live by it. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. One of the characteristics of our society is that we love pursuing and asking the following question. What's the bottom line? Think about it for a moment. So often 
whether we um, hear things that are complicated or difficult to understand or just things that are long, at the end of the day, we often have this impulse in us. Well, tell me what's the bottom line. Do you find yourself liking to ask that question? Some of you are nodding your heads. Well, it's as if the, the book of Ecclesiastes knew that impulse, human impulse of just bringing down, bringing home the bottom line so that in this conclusion, we will get the end of the matter. But before we get to the end of the matter, before we get to understand what is the bottom line of everything that has been said, the conclusion to this book has two extra elements. Uh, whenever you read a book, uh, you pick up a new book, whether you pick it up in a bookstore or online, you look at the endorsements. You look at the, the cover sheet and see what is being said about the author, especially if you don't know who the author is. There's a little biographical information about him and, and why he supposedly is uh, authorized or a eligible to write this book and why you should perhaps consider reading it. Perhaps in a similar way, this conclusion to the book of Ecclesiastes, verses 9 and 10, we have a, a biographical sketch about the preacher. Why should we listen to him? Why should we pay attention to this book? And then after this biographical um, note, we see the, uh, another note on the source and use of wise words. Why should we pay attention to the book of Ecclesiastes? What will it do to us? And then finally, we'll see the end of the matter. But let's look at the first two points, the, the biographical sketch and, and the source and use of, of, of wise words. The first point I'd like to show to you, uh, if you like taking notes, and by the way, I've been hearing from some of you who are not used to, uh, to, to hearing sermons that are 45 minutes long, that one way that actually it might help you pay attention and sort of be engaged through the whole sermon is by taking notes. That actually it does help you be engaged in listening to a 45-minute sermon. So if that's you this morning, I encourage you, keep on taking notes, and I'll try to give you some pointers along the way. But here's the first point um, for, the, for the first bi the biographical sketch. The motivation of the wise preacher. Why is he writing this to us? Why did he write these things for us? In verses 9 and 10, we are given a third a person perspective on the preacher of Ecclesiastes. It's as if someone else is, is commenting on him. And here's, here's the verses. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now take that on the backdrop of what we have studied and, and looked at for the past 16 weeks on the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember Ecclesiastes, the overall theme of the book was vanity. All is vanity. Vanities of vanities. We have seen what that meant. It's not so much that everything is meaningless as much as everything is temporary, transient. Nothing is permanent. Nothing will satisfy the hunger of the human soul. Not forever, at least. This book that sort of brings this, over, this message over and over again might feel negative, often. You might have walked away sometimes from some of these sermons and, and wonder, I came to be encouraged, and here I was brought to a sense of, of the harshness of life. It's 
not the kind of optimistic, motivational preaching that I want to hear. And often the book of Ecclesiastes would bring the sense of dissatisfaction with life. And yet, on the backdrop of that, now at the end of the book, we are told that the motivation behind the preacher's uh, writings, behind his search for wisdom, has been actually to find words of delight. He hasn't tried to find words of, of negative, pessimistic perspective on life. His motivation all along was to find words of delight. More so in verse 10, we are told that he wrote words of truth and that he wrote these words uprightly. The preacher's aims was not to have words that were merely delightful in form, but also to have words that were true in content. Friends, the balance between these is hard to maintain. So it's so easy to fall in one or the other. To either fall for and want to pursue words of delight or to want to pursue words of truth. The preacher is able to bring both together. Uh, sometimes uh, speaking the truth, pursuing words of truth, might be hard to hear. Might, be, might come across as, as hard to say, or we might say them in a harsh way. But doing that, speaking and pursuing words of truth, and yet do it in a delightful way, that's hard to achieve. Um, I love what one of the commentators, Micah Ian, said about this. To be upright but unpleasant is to be a fool. To be pleasant but not upright is to be a charlatan. This description of the preacher as seeking to find words of delight and words of truth is hard to accomplish. It's a wonderful ability to be able to speak the truth in a sweet way. Now, if you are hearing the word of words of truth and someone fails to deliver them in a sweet way, as it happens once in a while, right? If, if you hear the words of truth and, and they may not come exactly with the, with the delight you wished, friends, don't discount the word of truth just because it was not brought in a delightful way. Also realize the, the, the challenge. Sometimes we want to say the truth and the truth will hurt no matter how delightful we try to be. And they will come across as hurtful even though the motivation in the speaker, in the person bringing the truth, might be well-intended. It may still be difficult to hear it. Friends, don't discount the words of truth. Even though it might appear that they're coming with lack of delight. At the same time, if you're hearing words of delight, words that are easy to hear and pleasant to, to receive, friends, don't go for them 
just because they're delightful. It is very easy to just speak, wor- to speak words of delight and to hear just words of delight and yet lack truth. There are preachers who preach and fall in this category of just preaching words of delight but not including the words of truth. I will give you two warnings this morning of people whom you should not listen to. Joel Osteen and Joyce Myers. Words of delight, not of truth. just want to give that out. If you want to know more details about that, I'd love to talk to you. But be careful. Don't train your ear to listen not just for what's pleasing and delightful, but what's true. Be cautious and be aware. The motivation behind the speaker, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, he's trying to combine both. And even though the book of Ecclesiastes sounded pessimistic at times, it's because looking at life under the sun or looking at this life with only the perspective of what can be experienced under the sun will bring failure, will bring emptiness, will bring sorrow. It will not satisfy. It will not satisfy forever, even though it might feel joyful for the moment. Take that truth. The preacher tried to say it in as delightful of a way he could. That's why we have the book of Ecclesiastes. But the second point I'd like to bring out to you in this, in this conclusion, in this last paragraph of the book of Ecclesiastes, if the first one was the, the uh, motivation of the wise preacher, he sought to bring words of delight and words of truth together. The second point we see is the source and use of wise, wise words. The source and use of wise words. Look at verse 11. We are told that the true source of, of words of wisdom, in, in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly Fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Notice by whom are these words given? By one shepherd. Many commentators agree that uh, the reference to one shepherd here could be not, ju- not simply just a, a shepherd like a king of Israel, but it actually could be referring to God, the shepherd. He inspired the preacher to write these words. Yes, the preacher sought words of wisdom. He studied them. He weighed them. He arranged them. But behind his work, behind his toil, stands a true source of these words of truth. God. God gives us these words. But notice for what use. What is the use of of these words of wisdom? There's two images in, in in verse 11. The first image is this. The words of the wise are like goads. What are goads? Well, people who lived in Austin or they lived in cosmopolitan places who don't know the life of farming or the life of of cattle do not know what goads are often used for. It's when you want to get the cattle to stand up and get moving in the right direction, you have this feature that sort of inflicts a little pain in them to get them moving, get up and get going. Or if they are going in the, right direct, in the wrong direction, to redirect them on the right path. The words of the wise are like goads. They're supposed to inflict some pain. 
enough to get you going out of the rut you're in, out of the complacency you're in, or out of the wrong path you're taking. Yes, they are supposed to cause some pain. The words of the wise, when they're true, are going to be painful at times. That's why, dear friends, um, accept this category that the truth will hurt at times. If I were to bring a modern-day image of, of this image that the preacher or the book of Ecclesiastes gives us, it's as if uh, people would say, you've heard this phrase said, the preacher stepped on my toes today. I need to go and polish my shoes. Uh, Larry in our congregation brings that up all, quite often. Um, but it's, it's as if he's saying whatever was heard and spoken was so convicting that it, it, it hurt. Well, that's the point. It, it's supposed to be convicting to get us going, to pick up what we left off or to, to move away from a, a wrong direction and realign ourselves to, on the path of wisdom, the, the wisdom of God. Friends, the Bible says that the, wise, the, wor- wise, the words of the wise will be like goads for us. Friends, how do you react when the word of God is like a goad in your life? What do you do? Do you tend to um, explain it away? Oh, it, it doesn't refer to me. Oh, it's, oh, he doesn't understand my situation. Oh, if you really knew what I've been through. So explaining away? How about running away? Or, or, or just stop coming to church? Running away, finding another church to go to? This finding a place that's not stepping on your toes so often or so much. The words of the wise, says the Bible, are like goads. The second imagery about the use of wise words is the words of the wise are like nails firmly fixed. This imagery means that the words of the wise are, are to stick to our memory so we can keep them close to our minds. The reason why we're, they're useful to move us to action, the reason why they're useful to stick in our memory so that we have them available for our daily life is because they're given by one shepherd, the one who feeds us, the one who takes us on green pastures. In the next verse, we see a warning in verse 12. My son, be aware of anything beyond these words. Friends, we should be cautious about the wisdom that comes from sources other than God from sources other than His revelation to us in the Scriptures. His words have authority and power over us. His words have the ability to nourish us. His words have the ability to guide us on the path of truth. So we should let them stimulate us to action and keep them in our memory. So far we've seen the motivation behind the, the wise preacher. We've seen the source and use of wise words. But now, for the rest of our time this morning, let's Let's spend our focus on the very last point of this sermon, the end of the matter. The end of the matter. We've heard a lot in these 16 weeks in Ecclesiastes. We've heard about many life experiences, and and the preacher has taken us on this journey of life, showing us how far he can go and how empty those journeys have been, even when he reached the top of the ladder. What's the, what's the end of the matter? How can we summarize the entire book of Ecclesiastes in one or two sentences? 
Or here's what verse 13 aims to do for us. The end of the matter. All has been heard. So what do we remain with after hearing all? We'll hear two commands and two motivations. Two commands and two motivations. Look at verse 13. Fear God and keep His commandments. Friends, the fact that these two are two commands are, are put next to each other is significant. It points us to the greatness of God and the greatness of His Word. But let's look at each of these commands briefly and look at them not only in light of the book of Ecclesiastes, look at them in light of the whole canon of Scripture. We have encountered the, the command to fear God already a few times in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'll just repeat and read for you the words, the verses in Ecclesiastes where this command of fearing God has come before. Ecclesiastes 3.14 I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. Ecclesiastes 5, 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Ecclesiastes 7, 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Ecclesiastes 8, 12, and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Friends, all of that was said already in the book of Ecclesiastes, and now at the end we get this command again, fear God. People today misunderstand this command. People misunderstand the biblical notion of, of fearing God. Some think that the fear of God is only an, an Old Testament picture that is different than the focus of the New Testament on, on loving God. Friends, whenever, if you have that impression, that just shows you how little you actually understand about the fear of God and about the Bible speaking about the notion of the fear of God. In the New Testament, we have several places where the fear of God is commanded. Uh, the, the very first verse we've read at the beginning of our, our service this morning, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 1 Peter 2, 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Revelation 14, 7. And he said with a loud voice, the angel speaking to the inhabitants of the earth, Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who has made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Did you hear that in the book of Revelation? Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. New Testament clearly has a notion 
of the fear of God as an appropriate response, as an appropriate attitude towards God. But even in the Old Testament, the command to fear God was often, often connected with the notion of loving God. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses commanded the Israelites to fear God many times in Deuteronomy. And if we were to look at which book of the, Old, of the, of the, of the um, Pentateuch, of the five books of Moses, which one speaks mostly about the love of God? It's the book of Deuteronomy. The same book that speaks most about the fear of God speaks most about the love of God. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 6, the, the famous chapter where we read the, the, the greatest commandment that God has given to the Israelites, uh, to, fear, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, that command was introduced by a previous command to fear God. Or should I just pay, point you one other verse, and there's many others. Psalm 118. Here's how the, worship, the, the people in Psalm 118 are, are encouraged. Those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. In other words, the people who are fearing God should praise Him for His love. Love and the fear of God, the love of God and the fear of God are not opposite experiences. They go hand in hand. If you have a picture of fearing God that is separate from loving Him, you misunderstand the biblical notion of fearing God. Also, if you have a picture of loving God that has no room for fearing God, you misunderstand the biblical notion of loving God. So what is the fear of God? Well, let me, let me give to you, um, if you'd like to know more about it, I would love to encourage you, and I would love for you to read two books. Uh, one by Jerry Bridges, the, the Delight of Fearing, or The Joy of Fearing God. Jerry Bridges, The Joy of Fearing God. And the second book uh, by Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God is Small. Two books I strongly encourage you. If you'd like to know more about the law, the, what it means to, to fear God in a biblical way, I encourage you to pick these books up and read them. But according to the book of Ecclesiastes, the fear of God is in us whenever we have a great view of God. If we have a low view of God or a distorted view of God, we do not have the fear of God. In Ecclesiastes 3.14, the fear of God is the realization of His unchanging power and justice. In Ecclesiastes 7.8, the fear of God delivers from wickedness and self-righteousness. In Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 and 8, 12, the fear of God leads us to a hatred of sin. I love how John Murray uh, defined the fear of God. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. And he said, the fear of God in which godliness consists is the fear which constrains adoration and love. It is a fear which consists in awe, reverence, honor, and worship, and all of these on the highest level of exercise. The command to fear God puts us in our place, as one commentator said. The command to fear God puts us in our place, but it also does something else. 
it puts all other fears, hopes, and admirations in their place also. It's often in our own lives that we put these other fears, loves, and admirations for other things in the wrong place, in the place where only the love and adoration of God should be. The fear of God helps us reorient those and puts those fears in the right place. But notice that in our text, the command to fear God is commanded with another command, to keep His commands. It's not an accident that these commands are together. The proper fear of God leads us to keeping His commands. You cannot fear God or say that you fear God without keeping His commands. Friends, one place in the Old Testament where the command to fear God and to keep His commands meets for the first time is Deuteronomy 6. The very same passage where also the command to love God meets as well. Deuteronomy 6, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, says Moses, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. When we have the proper attitude towards God, an attitude of fear and love, it will lead us to obedience. Jesus said the same truth in John chapter 14, verse 15. He, Jesus said to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, friends, how many people claim to love God, but their love does not produce in them obedience to God? But when our worship of God is characterized by fear and love of God, it will cause our hearts to desire to obey God. I was talking this past week with one of, the, one of, the, one of our members about this very verse, and he mentioned to me a time when he was, his heart was not yet regenerate. He was in church, he was attending church, but his heart was not yet regenerate. That he thought, well, let me start obeying God so I can prove God that I love him. That's the wrong way to think about it. We don't obey God to prove that we love Him. We obey God out of gratitude because we love Him. It's a big difference. Worship leads to conduct. Or as someone said, conduct derives from worship. Uh, Ed Welch in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, said this, Our hearts have dozen strategies to avoid the fear of the Lord. One strategy is that we downgrade obedience, the concrete expression of the fear of the Lord, into a concern about appearance. We concentrate on actions and overlook the attitude. Friends, I pray that you would realize that we can sometimes be so focused on just the appearance of of coming across as godly, and yet our hearts are not motivated by that love of God that leads us to obey Him out of gratitude, out of joyfulness. I love, uh, I love how John Calvin, in his introduction in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, the very first few uh, chapters of that book, um, he wrote about 
piety, the pious mind, or the godly mind. And I'd like to read to you a, a, an excerpt of, of what he said about the, the godly mind. The, the pious mind does not dream up for itself any god it pleases. We don't come up with our own view of God as a way we like him to be, but contemplates the one and only true God. Also, the, the pious mind does not attach to him whatever it pleases. We don't project on God what we like him to be like. Rather, it, that the pious mind is content to hold him to be as he manifests himself in the scriptures. The pious mind recognizes God because it sees him to be a righteous judge armed with severity to punish wickedness. It ever holds his judgment seat before its gaze and through fear of him restrains itself from provoking his anger. And yet, and I love what he says next, listen to this, and yet it is not so terrified by the awareness of his judgment as to wish to withdraw even if some way of escape were open. But it embraces him no less as punisher of the wicked than as benefactor of the pious. For the pious mind realizes that the punishment of the impious and wicked and the reward of life eternal for the righteous equally pertain to God's glory. In other words, we fear God realizing that He is at the same time the judge of the wicked and the giver of life for those who fear Him. Both are supposed to be embraced by us. And we should not shun one versus the other. And even if we had a way of escaping the judgment of God, we would choose not to escape Him. Why? Because we know He's both a judge of the wicked and the benefactor of His people. Now, and he goes on to say this. Besides this, this mind, this pious mind, restrains itself from sinning not out of dread of punishment alone, but because it loves and reveres God as Father. It worships and adores Him as Lord. Listen to this. Even if there were no hell, it would still shudder at offending Him alone. Even if hell was not present, we would still shudder at offending God. Here indeed is pure and real religion, faith so joined with an earnest fear of God that this fear also embraces willing reverence and carries with it such legitimate worship as is prescribed in the law. Oh, friends, I hope you understand that the fear of God is that desire to embrace God for who He is and as He describes and reveals Himself to us not as we wish him to be. It's as, is that desire that embraces God both in, in all his attributes. And we love to obey his commands, not simply for the fear of going to hell. We desire to obey his commands because we love him. Two motivations why we should fear and keep God's commands. Two motivations that we should fear and keep God's commands. In our passage, for this is the whole duty of man. This is the whole duty of man. The Hebrew text does not 
include the word duty in this phrase. The word duty is a commentators have, have thought to be a, a good interpretation, and it's a good interpretation. In other words, if we were to take the Hebrew uh, literally, it would be like this. For this is the whole of man. This means that duty is more than just a duty. The, f- the command to fear God and to keep His commands is more than just a duty. It's our wholeness. According to Psalm 33, 8 and 9, we should fear the Lord because He created us. Psalm 33 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Friends, that means all the earth. It's not just a duty. All the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Do you hear this who is to fear the Lord? All the earth. Why should we fear the Lord? Because He, com- he created all things. By simply speaking things into being, we should have fear before the God who's able to speak all things into being. Ecclesiastes 12 started, chapter 12 started with this verse, remember also your creator. Friends, do you know that the one key characteristic of godless people is that they lack the fear of God? Here's how Paul describes them in Romans 3, 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What's sad about this particular phrase is that Paul applies this description not just to the pagans, but to the Jews as well. It is actually a phrase that comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Psalms 36, verse 1, when the psalmist says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Friends, to abandon the fear of God is at the heart of our rebellion against God. Well, friend, even God's people can be in danger of losing sight of the fear of God. And that we can lose sight of the fact that the fear of God is our wholeness, our completeness. We are incomplete without the fear of God. Incomplete as, as far as how God created us. It's more than a duty. It's our wholeness. We cannot be whole without this fear of God. And yet, friends, today, very few Christians speak about the fear of God. Very few churches preach on it. Why? If we look at the life of Jesus, one of the early prophecies about the the life of Jesus in the book of Isaiah, one of the prophecies given about Jesus Isaiah 11, 1 to 3, says that he, the Messiah, will delight in the fear of the Lord. These words describe the life of Jesus on earth. Friends, if Jesus was delighted in the fear of God, why are we pushing aside the fear of the Lord from our lives? Do you know that in the book of Acts, at one place, the church is described in the following way, that they were living in the fear of the Lord, Acts 9:31. As Jerry Bridges noticed, there was a time when Christians were known as God-fearing people. What happened to that description? 
Why has that bad description been lost? Friend, the fear of God is not just a duty. It's the center of our wholeness, of our humanity. If we could recover the beauty and the delight of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a call that puts us in our place and all our fears, hopes, and admirations in their place. Second reason why we should fear the Lord. Not only is it the duty of, a, of, of humanity, not only is it the wholeness of, of every one of us, but the second reason is for God will bring every deed into judgment. Notice that God's judgment will scan every secret, secret thing, whether good or evil. This description aims at getting us out of the complacency that we might have in the Christian life. This reminds us that nothing will go unnoticed and unassessed by the Almighty God, not even the things we have hidden from others. Do nothing you would not like God to see you. Say nothing you would not like God to hear coming out of your mouth. Write nothing you would not like God to read. Go to no place where you would not like God to find you. Browse no website which you would not want God to see. Watch no movie of which you would like God to say, what are you watching? Friends, I wonder if we take it to heart that the God we worship is the God who will bring every deed to judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The truth of God, coming, of His coming judgment, um, should not only deter us from evil, it should also be taken as an encouragement. Remember, Ecclesiastes has been telling us that life under the sun is vanity. Vanity of vanities. But now at the end of the book, the message of God's judgment actually aims to heal us of our falling into meaninglessness. If God cares so much that He will bring everything to judgment, even the secret things of life, then nothing in our life should be considered pointless or vanity. Everything matters. Even in a life that is cursed by vanity, everything matters because God will bring everything to judgment. Oh, friend, when we are led to believe that God doesn't care or He won't be bothered by what we do, when we remember that even how we use our time, our freedom, will be assessed by God, the creator of the universe, we're challenged to re-examine our apathy. We're challenged to re-examine our disobedience, our carelessness, our distractions, our temptations, our fears, our doubts. The judgment of God, however, is aimed not merely to frighten us, but also to comfort us and encourage us that to God, everything in this vain life matters. And in this sense, the motivation of God's judgment is actually an encouragement. God cares about every detail of our lives. He cares enough about us that He will bring everything to account. So, dear friend, let me ask you, do you cultivate a biblical fear of God in your life? Parents, do you cultivate a biblical fear of God in your children? Let me ask you, when your kids have to choose between missing practice at school or missing church, which one do you allow them to miss? And what does that choice say about who you fear most? 
or about what you teach your, your children to fear most. What you teach your children about what they should hold in greater awe. The fear of the Lord is not natural to our sinful nature. That's why we must learn how to fear the Lord. How should we learn to fear the Lord? I love the three practical advices that Ed Welch gives in his book on how we learn the fear of God. Here's the first one. By reading and meditating on the Word of God. The whole Bible is a textbook on teaching us the fear of God. I love Deuteronomy chapter 17. When Moses gives instructions to the, king, the future kings of Israel, and Moses tells them that they should make a personal copy of God's law. They should own a personal copy of God's law so they would read it. Why? Here's the verse. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law. The king was to read, to own, and read this book so he may fear the Lord. Oh, friends, read Scripture with the intent of growing and learning the fear of God. Second, pray that God helps you grow in the fear of him. As you read the word, ask God to help you read, not simply to get the facts. Ask God to help you understand his greatness and to learn of his severity against sin. Friends, the Old Testament is a wonderful place to understand the severity of God against sin. Read the Old Testament by, with this desire to understand how harsh God is against sin. And then read the New Testament as well. How God prepared a way to escape from that sin. Third, be cautious of tendencies to make God more manageable. Be cautious of tendencies to make God more manageable. Don't try to fit God in the box of your comfortable thinking. And the, uh, I want to leave you with a, a fourth advice on how to fear God, how to learn the fear of God, by looking at the cross. By looking at the cross. When we look at the cross, we often only see one side of the story of God, the love of God for us. And that is true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In Christ, God has manifested for us his love so that we would turn to him in faith and repentance and whoever does turn to him in faith and repentance would indeed receive eternal life. Oh, friend, if you have not repented and turned to Christ and to God through Christ in faith, I encourage you to do that today. But the cross is not just a picture of God's love. The cross is a picture of God's wrath against sin. If God did not spare even his son from carrying out punishment against him, against sin, through him, oh, friend, God will not spare us of his wrath, of his wrath against our sin. 
if we have not, if we don't have our sin absolved and forgiven and taken away. Fear God by looking at the cross. There is no salvation apart from the cross of Christ. Outside of Christ, God is a fearful God that we should be fearful of his punishment. In Christ, God is a fearful God, but one who has manifested not only his wrath, but also his acceptance. And we receive him and we follow him as children who are, are looking at him in awe and reverence. He is not a safe God, but he's a good God. A God that we can trust. A God that we can run to. And when we run to him with repentance and faith, he will receive us safely. But if we don't run to him with repentance and faith, if we approach him on our own terms, or if we run away from him, there's no confidence that he will be safe towards us. That's why, dear friends, the, the, the sign of a godly mind is a mind who has learned to approach God on his terms through Christ. If you have not done that today, if you have not done that so far, I encourage you to do so today. Would you pray with me? Lord, teach your church. Teach us to fear you. Your grace is not always amazing to us. We are slow to hate our sin. We're more concerned with what someone thinks about our appearance than we are about reverential obedience before you. Father, teach us to delight in the fear of you. We want to treasure your fear and to give it to the next generation in a way that they might know what it means to fear you and love you with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. May the people gathered in this place grow in the sphere of you. May you be pleased in that. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.